Blog Talk Radio. Good evening. This is TS Radio. Hi, I'm Marcel Reed, your show guide. This evening, we're going to have a very interesting program with the USDA Black Farmers on TS Radio, hosted by Lawrence Lucas. He will be speaking to Michael Stovall. They have been in front fighting for farmers' rights for years now. Hopefully, this program will provide you with a great deal of information that you need to find out about the USDA and black farmers' rights in America. I'll turn it over to you now, Lawrence. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Marcel Reed. Um, I want to say this show has, in fact, been very effective with reaching out to many of those who don't have an opportunity to hear about the pain and suffering of of others. Um, After a whistleblower conference about five years ago, uh, Marty Oakley, who is the founder of this show, who passed recently, and Marcel Reed, we sat down and we talked about exposing the whistleblower community and others to the struggle of what's going on in civil rights as it relates to civil rights. And it opened the door for us to deal with the issue of the systemic racism and abuse of women and others at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And I can't say thanks enough for the two of them. And Marcel, if you don't mind, I'm going to say thank you now again for allowing us to be in this space, allowing black farmers and employees and women in pain and suffering at the U.S. Department of Agriculture for five years to take advantage of this space and other space that people in the social media will have an opportunity. Tonight, uh, we are expecting to have join us Dr. Marsha Adebayo. But in place of her, until she comes on and Marcel is going to do the introduction, we have Michael Stovall. And Michael Stovall has been on the show many times talking about the pain and suffering of black farmers. But the difference between Michael and a lot of farmers, he understands the need for systemic change, change that will bring about a better workplace for women that have been abused, for black employees who have been called the N-word. I have trouble saying that, by the way, because I'm from the old school. And employees and women who have been sexually abused. He understands that. And for that reason, we've been able to work together and coalesce together and bring about a partnership between the radio show, a absence of knowledge 
from the listening public and tying in and bringing together farmers like himself who are advocates, who are farmers, who understand and is willing to share the pain and suffering of others. I can't say enough about, Michael, um, why don't you tell us uh, why you are now continuing this struggle at USDA? Good evening. My name is Michael Stowell. I'm a farmer here in Alabama. I've been I'm a fourth generation of farmers. The struggle that's been going on with the USDA that I have seen for the last 30 years um, is systemic systemic racism at this agency. Um, black farmers, black employees, and women employees that suffered uh, greatly on the hands of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And the Justice Department refused to hold the USDA accountable for its wrongdoing. Black farmers have lost billions of acres of land because of discrimination that occurred under the hands of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, from Republicans to Democrats. Nobody wants to fix the problem. They're always trying to put a Band-Aid on the problem that needs to be internal fix all across the United States of America. This agency have taken millions of acres of land, destroyed many families, employees, and farmers that just want a, a place to work, just want a place to be able to get loans and programs to be able to operate their farms. These are the kind of things that the USDA allowed to go on in this agency as a whole. And it's so embedded that it's all across the United States of America. You know, just like they passed these legislation that's not even being implemented by a secretary that's racist and not willing to do the right thing or is bringing justice to all. Uh, if we was white farmers, we'd been paid many years ago, and we wouldn't still be in the struggle that black farmers are still being in. So this is the kind of thing that goes on consistently with this agency, and nobody wants to address, and I hold the Justice Department accountable because they're the police of the country. And... They go alone to get alone because they represent the U.S. Department of Agriculture and its wrongdoing. Those are the kind of things that's going on in this country that nobody wants to notice. Nobody wants to look at it and do something about the problem. We call out the Black Caucus. We call out the end of, uh, any black leadership that's out there to address this problem that's been going on in America for many years. They know they owe over $350 billion in lost land and income for these families, and nobody want to stand up and address the problem. But they can pay these white farmers, keep them in the fields, and run us out of business and steal our land. Those are the kind of things that goes on in the Department of Agriculture. Uh, 
That's really interesting. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Yes, we can hear you. That's really interesting, uh, Michael, because earlier today we were um, just having an aside conversation, but it kind of um, dovetails with this. After the Supreme Court turned over affirmative action um, this afternoon, for, this morning for colleges, I've just had a wellspring of calls about it. And they all think it's interconnected. Um, and you don't want to be a conspiracy theorist. But I had a friend of mine that said after Obama, Kamala, and Juneteenth, what did we expect to happen? Do you think that this helps your efforts at USDA, or do you think it could be on that continuum that it actually is going to be more difficult now? Well, it's always going to be more difficult until the to the issue is addressed. And um, this has been going on for many, many decades, and nobody really wants to address the problem. So regardless, uh, we get two steps forward and three steps backwards. It's always a problem when it comes to race uh, injustice in the United States of America. We cannot seem to push forward and bring in justice for everybody. You know what I'm saying? Those are the problems that steady going on in the USDA. It's been more bills passed, more re- regulations put in place. It's just like the USDA has a regulation that's supposed to keep them intact and and if they violate that regulation, they violate that person's civil rights. Those are things that's been going on in this agency for many years, and nobody wants to address it. You know, affirmative action is good, but it's not good when it's not being implemented in the proper way. Um, here it is. You know, we in 2023... And we went through Jim Crow. We didn't been through slavery. And we still alive. We still hanging in there. But we still is also discriminated against by the color of our skin. Those are the things that still happening in the United States of America. We pushed five steps back. We might move one step forward. But this agency and many other agencies are being um treating black people like second-class citizens. You know, it's just it's just sad that here it is 2023 and we're still facing so much racism. We're still facing so much injustice. And farmers have died in the struggle trying to hold on to their farmland. All they want to do is get a fair shake at the table. Well, we can't seem to get that when we don't have the proper leadership to enforce the regulations that's on the books. And those are the things that needs to happen for black America to step up and do something about the Democrat party, the Republican party, the whole, the agency accountable, accountable for what it has done to black families and also employees that wants to do the right thing. This agency is corrupt from the bottom to the top. 
and nobody wants to seem to do anything about it. Um, Michael, thank you. Uh, um, there's one thing that you mentioned moments ago. You mentioned the word leadership. Where is and what can be done or what should be done in terms of leadership? And I'm talking about the leadership at USDA, i.e. Biden, Joe Biden, as president who put Vilsap in place. The other piece of that leadership is the leadership that organizations that are supposed to give technical assistance and other advice to farmers. Um, that's a part of, of the leadership question that I'm putting to you. And to make the question even broader, we are, let's talk about the leadership of our black leaders and organizations that are politically astute about this issue and know about this issue have not stepped up, as far as I can see, as president of the Coalition of Minority Employees, as a representative of the Justice for Black Farmer Group. You know about the work we've done. Can you address one, two, and three? Um, and you can do it in any order you wish. I appreciate that. Well, the, the Biden administration, you know, the Democrat Party, does just enough to put a band-aid on the problem. And when you go out and give organizations money to be quiet and not do anything about the systemic racism at the USDA, this is what you get. Everybody is on the titty of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. You know, we have, you know, when I see so many people and so many agencies get paid off, not to address the real problem. And I hold the Justice Department accountable because they're the police of the United States. All these people that's getting $25 million, $10 million, $15 million, $40 million hush money to not do technical system properly, to not let the farmers know what's available for them and how to hold on to the land, those are the things that's the payoff that these uh, organizations are getting from the USDA to be quiet. And this is something that the secretary doing all across the country with these organizations um, by paying them off to be quiet. You know, they put out this two-point-something billion dollars to pay the farmers and they added the white farmers included for discrimination acts that the USDA have uh, occurred for many years, and they already admit that they owe over $350 billion, that's a slap in the face. And I, I'm still going back to the Justice Department because the Justice Department is all in cahoots with the USDA to destroy many black families across the United States of America. Now, this black leadership from from the Democrat Party, um, the Black Caucus, all these people knows what's going on, but nobody wants to step around because everybody's getting paid under the table. Those are the problems that we are having uh, 
And that's the reason this agency can continue to discriminate and destroy families across the United States. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I think you covered that uh, very well. And I was wondering, there was another thing that uh, we, we've been talking about in the federal government and in terms of whistleblowers as well as at USDA and the discrimination and how widespread it is. And one thing is, the one thing that comes to mind all the time with me is accountability and transparency. And I see that transparency and accountability should be addressed and part of the equation in dealing with farmers as well as employees. This issue of accountability, we talk about it and we hear people using it very loosely. What is being done at USDA or what is being done in the Congress? What is being done in the news media to tell us that there's some degree of accountability as it relates to the dysfunctional civil rights process at USDA, which they call the last plantation for good reason? Can you, can you address that, please? Well, the accountability part is not enough. Everybody looking at it and putting a band-aid on it. Nobody wants to get down and get the core, core of the root of the problem. Everybody wants to claim that they're doing something to address this issue. Just like they put in this equity committee and all this stuff together and it doesn't do anything but confuse the people because they don't have no voice. They're not doing anything, and they're not bringing any justice to any black farmer across the United States or any employee. It's all a smokescreen to make the public feel like something good is going on. But all it is is putting a band-aid on a soap that that's what the USDA does just enough to feel like and make the public feel like something is actually being done and then nothing's being done because it's systemic racism all across the board in this in this department from the county committee to the uh farm loans um all the way up to the top head of the US Department of Agriculture and nobody wants to hold these people accountable and that's the problem with this agency is embedded discrimination. And I still go back to the Justice Department because they the ones allowing this to continue to go on because the USDA pays the Justice Department to fight against your discrimination claim. This is what they do to destroy you even more. This agency is corrupt from the bottom to the top, and it needs to be dealt well. Thank you. Okay, thank you very very much. And you, we, we talk all the time about uh, accountability and transparency, but 
we never talk about who's responsible to making sure that agencies throughout the federal government um, make sure that the employees in the workplace can you hear me are, tre- are treated with I'm sorry. dignity hello hello i'm sorry for interrupting um but uh dr uh coleman Adebayo is on the line okay and i know that you've been waiting for her to speak um i think that you gentlemen have carried on a, a very important conversation and has shed the light on the USDA. Um, but I think that perhaps she might be able to add a great deal. So would you like me to bring her on now? Yeah, bring her on and uh, and please introduce her, Marcel. I will. Thank you, Michael. Hello, um, our listening audience, I am so happy to bring on board Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo, um, who is an icon and a civil rights leader. She has persisted under some of the most difficult circumstances in the country. Not only is she an icon for what she has done in our local area, but she is an icon for what she's done internationally. She is the person that is most responsible for the first Civil Rights Act of the 21st century, the No Fear Act of 2002. In addition to that, she is a Pulitzer Prize winning author of a book called No Fear, which recounts the difficulties that she had with trying to save the lives of so many children. I cannot wait for you to meet Dr. Marsha Coleman Adebayo. Hello, can you hear us? Oh, absolutely. Good after, Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. What a beautiful introduction. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Thank you. Oh, no, I appreciate you. But now is the time for Lawrence to um, interview his two friends, but he has been friends with Dr. Adebayo for years. So, Lawrence? Yes. Uh, thank you, Marsha, for being on, and I want to thank uh, uh, Michael Stovall, farmer from Alabama, for uh, giving us a update. Marsha, I've been trying to get you on this show for a long time, and I want to thank you. Thank you so very much. I know you're busy. I understand why um, you could and not get on when you probably wanted to, but I know the schedule that you have, and I know the demands that uh, people have put on you because Um, we know that you are a leader. And I want to thank you for breaking away from whatever you were doing tonight and to be on this show and share a little about you and and your history. But tell us about what, the American people and our listening audience should know about what you do and why you did it to bring you to where you are today, please. Oh, oh my God. Um, well, first of all, thank you, Lawrence. It's, you know, I'm one of your biggest fans. So, um, so I'm, I'm very honored to be on the show, and I'm very honored that you, you, know, that you would uh, invite me to, to share um, this journey with your, with your listeners. 
So I think you're talking about my um, my work at EPA, uh, which is a little bit different than the work that I'm doing right now on black burial grounds, but but there are similarities, of course, and that is that we are fighting um, white supremacy and we're fighting structural, the structure that holds black people um, in place in subordinate positions. And as you know, I met you around the black farmers um, issue, which I feel very deeply about um, because you know, farmers are the ones who grow the food in society. They're the ones, one of the most important sectors of society. And yet, you know, the way this society treats farmers is, you know, definitely third, fourth class citizenship. And so, and black farmers in particular that hold so much indigenous knowledge from Africa about farming, you know, should be, you know, elevated in this society and yet, in fact, what happens is that their land is being stolen from them um, and large corporations are taking over their land. So, you know, um, you know so I'm, anyway, I'm just incredibly happy and very honored to be on your show. Oh, thank you very much. There, I think there's another piece of your, uh, your, your life and what you've done for others that I would like for you to share. I know for a fact, uh, we go back years, uh, Mm -hmm. and I know that uh, I'd march from uh, a park near the White House to EPA. Uh, And and so happened Michael Stovall, who is on tonight. Uh, We partnered and and carried signs and chanted uh, in front of EPA. Mm -hmm. Those were days that were very very strenuous on Mm -hmm. you as well as others that followed you and helped you as well as your fellow employees. Tell Mm -hmm. tell us about the stress and pain and suffering that also like the U.S. Department of Agriculture and farmers and employees are suffering. Tell us about the experience and some of the people you know and the pain and suffering they had in order to get that dignity and respect and follow you and, and, and stand with you so many times in Washington and you've been in hearings. And, and I want you to eventually to talk about also that experience you had with how you made contact with the Congress and passed this a very, very important bill that is with us today, and that's the No Fear Act. Please. I know I gave you a lot. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe you're going to have to come back and remind me about different parts <laughs> okay. of that. But I will do so. Yeah, when I arrived at EPA, um, it seemed to me, and I was coming from the United Nations, which was, you know, in my in my office at the United Nations, there were about maybe 50 different nationalities. And and I left New York and I came to Washington D.C. and I joined the EPA. First, I joined the World Wildlife Fund, which was basically an all-white organization. But then I left when when the director of the World Wildlife Fund was uh, selected as the administrator for EPA. Uh, a number of us left the World Wildlife Fund and we traveled and we 
we were basically we followed um, the director from the World Wildlife Fund to, to EPA. And my first experiences at EPA reminded me of it's like a time traveler. I mean, I felt like I had gone back into history um, to like the 1930s, 1940s. And the racism, the inequality, the just outright uh, inhumanity that black people who worked at the EPA faced was, was just something, I must admit, I don't know that I had ever faced that kind of ongoing vile racism like I faced at the EPA, uh, where people literally would call you names in, in our management meetings. Like, um, you know, you'd walk into a room, you know, expecting to sit in the meeting and contribute your knowledge to a conversation, and your supervisor would, would call you an honorary white man in front of your colleagues that all laugh at you. Um, there was just such an expectation that you were to accept second-class citizenship, that that was your role, that everyone expected that you understood that you were not quite as human as everyone else, and that you had bought into that um, essentially for a paycheck, and that you were going to be quite happy with that status. And I, you know, I was assigned eventually um, a role of, of working with the Nelson Mandela government who had just come to power in South Africa. And my job was to um, help the South African government reorganize its environment department uh, away from just tourism and, and the incredible park system, but to also helping people who live in the townships um, fight pollution and and all kinds of environmental problems in the township. And that's when I began to really see that it wasn't just a national problem, it was an international problem in terms of the way the United States government just saw black people in general, um, that we were not quite human and that the expectations for um, uh, delivering environmental goods in Africa was quite different than the expectations of, of delivering environmental goods in Europe. And when I started complaining about the way Africans were being treated by the EPA and the fact that we were ignoring populations that were dying uh, from pollution and from poisoning in South Africa, you know, I was told, you know, you know, you make a lot of money, you know, you know, why are you worrying about you know, these black people in Africa, why don't you just, you know, redecorate your office and make yourself happy? Um, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a surreal environment. And, you know, when you live in that environment five days a week, eight to 10, 12 hours a day, you know, after a while you have to make up your mind whether or not you're going to... Um, whether or not you're going to maintain your silence or whether you're going to speak out um, about this. And particularly when I started seeing people die from the discrimination, from the stress, both in the United States and in Africa, I decided um, that I had to speak out. And when I did, um, you know, basically the ceiling fell on my head and, you know, I started receiving death threats 
and rape threats, and my family was placed um, in danger. Um, people would, you know, call me and say, you know, your your son's outside and he has on, you know, a white shirt and blue pants. And you realize that I was being followed at home at that point. It wasn't safe for my children to play outside anymore. It was it was incredibly difficult. So I filed a lawsuit against the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency um, for racism, sexism, and retaliation. And it took about maybe a year and a half um, before um, the process really kicked in. But in the meantime, I mean, I had to be walked to my car every night, and I kept receiving calls that someone had put a bomb under my car. And so, um, you know, they would. there was a security guard who was very kind who would walk me to my car, and he would literally slide under my car to see if he saw a device uh, under my car. Um, you know, I got so many threatening phone calls that at some point I just started ignoring them, to be honest with you. So it was a very, very – so blowing the whistle in the federal government and being a black woman who doesn't know her place, is a very difficult position to be in. But I also saw, you know, black secretaries who were just being stretched, who were being stressed out of their lives. And I know two black, two black women who actually died um, while I was at EPA. One was, uh, was a secretary in my office who was literally just being stressed, stressed beyond, you know, anything that could be considered normal. And she little she had a heart attack before she came to work one day, and then there was another black woman who also had joined the No Fear Coalition, and when she joined the coalition, her office decided to to go after her, and she literally died at her desk at EPA. So you know we we saw a lot of of retaliation and and literally, I mean, I think of it as murder on one level in terms of the way black women were being treated. And and we decided as a group, um, I organized something called the No Fear Coalition, and we organized because as individuals, there was a limit to what we could do, but we knew if we organized, we'd have so much more power. And so we, we organized and we really became a force to be reckoned with. And then, of course, the agency started firing people who were a part of the organization. Um, since I had filed a lawsuit, I had some protection. But once I won my lawsuit, the agency moved to fire me as well. And so eventually um, I was fired after I won my lawsuit. Um, and, um, and so it's been a journey, as you said. It's been a journey and that's how I met you, of course, was in the process of organizing the No Fear Coalition. We started coalition building, and, of course, one of the organizations that we reached out to was, was USDA and also, you know, the Commerce Department and every department that we could think of. And all the departments in the U.S. government were discriminating against black people. And so after a while, we had quite a coalition composed of you know, most of the agencies in the U.S. government. Um, but it was, it was an incredible struggle. And, um, and, 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 you know, some people, I mean, there were, there were heroes and there were martyrs in our, in our movement. 
But most of us, I think, face, um, you know, excessive discrimination, retaliation, um, and it, it just was a very difficult time. But we, most of us survived. Hello? Uh, um, thinking about the, the organization and the sh- structural piece that uh, you put together and get you to where you were, mm-hmm. um, tell, tell us really how was it that you were able to convince and go to the Congress and you felt strongly enough and you had support enough uh, to help you in that regard. But tell us, and I think it's good to let people know how you, as, as, as a leader, and cared about other people. How did you get this bill passed? Who did you go to and what happened? Mm-hmm. Give us a little short overview about that. Well, that, that's an interesting story, actually. Because Congress doesn't really kick in. First of all, I had worked. One of the, one of my jobs before I, I came to EPA was that I was a senior researcher for the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. And so I had experience. I had HEAL, what they call HEAL experience in Washington, D.C. I had worked with about 30 members of Congress. And in terms of my academic background, I'm a political scientist. And so I understood a lot about how to put together a coalition, and I understood a lot about from my work with the Congressional Black Caucus, how to work within the halls of Congress and how to pass a bill, not just a theory of how to pass the bill, but actually how to pass a bill um, in, in real time. So I think my background helped a lot in terms of pulling together um, the, the resources to pass the No Fear Act. By the way, that's 20, we just celebrated the 20th anniversary of the No Fear Act. Um, so, um, so Congress was difficult because when I first went to Congress and started talking to members about my experience at EPA, they didn't want to get involved because it was at that point it was a dispute between two parties. It was the management over um, an employee um, uh, version of what was going on. It was after I won my lawsuit when the courts had decided that I had been discriminated against. That's when Congress really kicked in. And I remember, I think you were there, uh, We, the, the, I think two days after I passed, after I won my case, um, basically, almost everybody from EPA just sort of spilled out into the street, and we had a mass rally outside of EPA, and a lot of people came and they spoke, congratulating me for winning um, my lawsuit. And interestingly enough, at that rally, there was a young woman there who I'd never met before. And she was from a Republican congressional office. It was the office of F. James Sensenbrenner. And she told me that Mr. Sensenbrenner wanted to talk with me. 
And that was the first time that Congress actually reached out to me. I have been trying very hard to get Democrats to talk to me. And it wasn't really until until the Republicans showed an interest in this story that Democrats started opening up and saying that they also wanted to talk with me. I think that's sort of interesting. And so we were able to put together a bipartisan uh, coalition in Congress. Uh, Sheila Jackson Lee from Texas headed up the Democratic part. F. James Simpson-Brenner from Wisconsin headed up the Republican side. And we were able to sort of knit together this Democratic-Republican um, bipartisan group. And, and it was very successful. Uh, and we actually passed Congress, as you know, unanimously. And then we took this campaign to the Senate. And the Senate is where bills die, quite frankly. And we were concerned because I think it took us about two months before we received our first signature. Uh, that someone had signed on on the Senate side. But once that person signed on, then other senators quickly signed on. And I, but I think altogether it took about maybe two to three years to pass the No Fear Act. So it took some time and a lot of shoe leather, just marching up and down, talking to every member who would talk to us. Um, but eventually we passed, and we passed the law. And, in fact, the day that we were supposed to sign the bill was, was September 11th, 2001. And we were actually on the grounds of Congress uh, on the U.S. Capitol when we saw the planes fly over. And then we heard the explosion at, uh, at the Pentagon. And then we also saw the, the – we also heard the order to evacuate um, Congress. And we were a part of the people running away from, 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 from the U.S. Capitol on 9-11. Um, but then, of course, we were invited back, and we, we, uh, Congress passed, again, the Senate, as well as the entire House passed the No Fear Act unanimously. And it's, as you're right, it became the first civil rights and whistleblower law of the 21st century. Oh, wow. That tells our, listening, our listeners a lot. And for farmers and farmer advocates who are listening, uh, it just tells about how if you really want to bring about change, you have to be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, mm-hmm. Marsha, you made the ultimate sacrifice. And, and of course, you did this. I remember when you uh, invited the farmers Yes. And we had a, what was it, um, Stovall Parliament member, do you know the year that was that uh, we mm. had the, the farmers and uh, yes, uh, Congresswoman Jackson Lee and Congressman Fontroy. Tell us a little about that. Why did you feel as though it was necessary to invite the farmers to such an well, event? Well, my, my grandfather was a farmer. And um, from Florida, and you know, and black people. I mean, you know, I mean, most 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 black people have farmers in their background, even if you know, even if they're raised in the city, they still know um, that their grandfather or their grandmother or someone in their family was a farmer. And and I had always been, and my mother was really into farming, 
So I was, I was, um, I was just always sort of fascinated by 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 farmers, and then, but 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 for me, it was it was more than just um, sort of this interest that I had or carryover from my family members who were farmers. To me, farmers were the black farmers were fighting for land, and land is the basis of all wealth. And what the United States government has done so organically is to deprive black people of land. And when you deprive black people of land, you deprive people of intergenerational wealth. And that to me is what just attracted me to the black farmers movement so much is that here were people fighting for land. I mean, every revolution in the world fights for land. I mean, that is the reason why people um, you know, overturn governments. That's the reason why people take up arms is because because they want to control the land because that's the basis of all wealth. And what the United States government has done so, I think, successfully is to separate us from our ability to um, to have intergenerational wealth by separating us from the land and then imposing these artificial goals upon us. Like, you know, if, if, if we control land, then we don't have to beg anyone for voting rights. If we control land, then we don't have to beg anyone for jobs. If we control land, then we don't have to worry about, you know, um, a financial aid for our children. It's because we are landless that we are so vulnerable. And so I immediately wanted to connect to a movement that was fighting for land. And, and it's, it's one of the reasons why I now lead a movement in Bethesda, Maryland, around a black cemetery. Um, because, you know, you know, not only, you know, is the United States government and other institutions um, destroying black cemeteries, but at the basis of the whole cemetery movement, is the fight for land. And, you know, I would very much like for people who are listening to this broadcast to begin to really think about, um, you know, what is the, when you think about the people who have intergenerational wealth, you know, where is that wealth coming from? And I would say 90% of the times it's coming from the fact that they have a relationship or they own land. And that's what we really need to begin to fight for. It's not just simply jobs. We need to fight to own land and to recover land. So, um, so that was the reason why I was so attracted to the Black Farmers Movement. Thank you very much. I think in addition, uh, we always talk about accountability and transparency. The one thing that, and we also talk about oversight, Mm -hmm. Um, You were able – talk about the need uh, in the federal government for the kinds of oversight, and that oversight which creates and makes government work more effectively. If you don't have oversight, if you don't have leadership, and and you don't have an – and if you need an organization like the EEOC, I want want you to share with with us – what I've touched on just briefly and end up with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and what you think about that. Yeah, well, 
you know, there is no oversight, obviously, because if there was oversight, you wouldn't have the level of discrimination in the federal government that you have right now. And the federal government has been, I think, brilliant in terms of how they have created what you call a plantation system, you know, where you have, you know, white overseers or white owners, and then you have the overseers, and then you have the black overseers that are supposed to control the black population, uh, black populations in the federal government. So you literally do have the structure of a plantation inside the federal government, and the goal is to control the employees in the federal government so that they don't tell the truth about the corruption within the federal government. And, I mean, and they, and they use a lot of techniques so that people, um, you know, are able to ignore what, what they're seeing every day, which is, you know, an enormous amount of corruption. Um, so if we really had oversight, we would be able um, to protect the, 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 the public um, so much, in so many ways. Like, you know, at the, at the EPA, at one point I was in a toxics office, and, you know, and we saw the difference between the way the white communities were being treated versus the black communities in terms of, in, in terms of you know, protecting populations against pollution. It was clear, and yet there was no oversight because everyone just assumed that, you know, black communities are going to, uh, are going to um, face more pollution than white communities. And, and black employees, if you want to um, continue to be elevated throughout the system, you just keep your mouth closed and you just keep sort of allowing, you know, the minutia just to keep rising, sending you to the top. But, of course, if you start talking about accountability and you start talking about the discrimination that you're seeing on the job and how it's impacting your your community, at that point you're labeled a troublemaker and your career becomes fairly short in the federal government. Um, so I found the federal government extremely difficult uh, because one was being asked to sell your soul almost on a daily basis. And in exchange for selling your soul, of course, was your salary and your benefits. And if you were a single mother or a single father, of course, that was a really difficult decision for you to make. So, so I, I found that the working in that, in that environment was unhealthy, not only for the employees, but also for the community. Okay. Thank you very much. You answered um, the question. But I want to get back to when we talk about oversight, we have, mm -hmm. like at the Department of Agriculture, you have oversight uh, committees in agriculture, House, House as well as Senate. But you do have, with the organization, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is also supposed to direct and conduct oversight over these government agencies to make sure they're doing their job. And that includes um, the entire government. What do you think what do you think the problem is with an organization that is supposed to be directed to have oversight, conduct oversight and fix the problem 
along with the same kinds of problems that we have with the dysfunctional civil rights process at USDA, and nobody is holding anyone accountable there as well. Can, can you kind of uh, share what you think, um, and you've had a chance to look back at this, what do you think about what needs to be done in accountability and those agencies and individuals who are supposed to have oversight and do something about fixing the problem? Yeah, I mean, I think those agencies need to be abolished. Um, I don't think there's, I don't, I don't think that there's, you know, I don't think there's a way of reforming um, agencies that were created to um, uh, to disguise um, the structural racism and and dysfunction of the federal government. I think at some point, it's like the police force. At some point, you really do have to talk about abolition. And these agencies were, were literally created um, as a way of controlling the anger and the frustration of black people and perhaps, you know, women in the workplace. And what they do is they channel you in, back into the system that's oppressing you. And it, takes, it's, it actually takes a while. It's, it's a very deceptive system. Um, and it, I know in my case, it took me a couple of years before I realized, you know, I'm working with a system that's working against me. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely trying to work through a system which, in which every mechanism, every structure is put into place um, to see that people like me and others um, are, fail through the process. And so, you know, so that is one of the, the major problems in, in the federal government, I think, that there's so many institutions that have nice-sounding names like Equal Opportunity Commission or some other, you know, equally nice name, which, which are really put into place in order to frustrate people, in order to um, exacerbate um, the, the, the inequities of the system, you know, I remember, like the Civil Rights Office, for example, I remember at EPA, and I'm a political scientist, so I should have known this. I should have looked at an organization chart. But the first time I went to the Civil Rights Office, I assumed it was concerned with, with civil rights. I had no idea that the Civil Rights Office at EPA was located under the Administrator's Office. And what the goal of the Civil Rights Office was, was to protect the Administrator not to protect um, the employees. And the same thing is true, of course, with the Equal Opportunities Commission. The Equal Opportunities Commission is there to protect management, not the people who are complaining. And I've known people who have spent 5, 10, 15 years of their lives trying to navigate the EEOC only to find out that their cases have been corrupted by the inner workings of the EEOC. So, I mean, I think one of the challenges um, facing um, federal employees now is to, if, perhaps if I were still in the federal government, is to really fight to create new institutions um, that have integrity and that really support and fight for employees and not the same institutions that, quite frankly, are being paid for 
by the government and, and of course, their, their allegiance is to the government and not to, to employees. And so I think, you know, we need independent institutions um, that are not attached to, to the federal government um, that can really solve some of these problems. But we don't have those institutions right now, and a lot of people are being chewed up by going through the EEOC or the Office of Civil Rights in their, in their agencies. Thank you. Uh, you most definitely answered uh, the question. Marsha, I, I can't – you have touched on many pieces and addressed many of the questions that we have, and I think our listening public really has now a better foundation and a better feel for what a an employee – a farmer, as well as others, are suffering. And you've ta- you've talked about the whistleblower. We have about four more minutes uh, left of time. And I want you to know that what would you like to leave our listening public? Um, what, what do you have to offer to them in terms of the struggle and standing up as you did? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's um, look, I think what I've left behind for my children is a sense of a, a life that, that, that was lit with integrity. And I think that that's basically what we need to do is to begin to really focus on youth now, to focus on our, on our young folks and to, to make sure that they understand that they do not have to sell their souls um, to an institution in, in order to, you know, um, you know, in order to be successful, that they can be successful in many ways outside of making these incredible sacrifices in which, you know, they, they end up oppressing or, or, or sacrificing their own health um, in, order, in order to be successful. I think it's also important for us to think about institutions that – that we can have an impact on, like we were talking about EEOC. I think, for example, with the No Fear Coalition, if it were still in existence, I think we would be fighting for an independent EEOC that's not attached to the federal government, uh, where employees can feel free to go to these institutions and receive advice um, that that, um, supports their case as opposed to being deceived by these institutions and then realizing five, six years later that, in fact, you, you received advice that actually, you know, killed your case. So, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's really time for, for us to organize and to, and to commit uh, to some form of self-determination outside of these institutions. But to the extent that we have to continue to work in these institutions, we have to, you know, we have to fight to be able to work there with integrity. Uh, thank you so very much. Uh, Marcia, I have a thank question. You. Go ahead, um, Marcel. Marcel, sorry. Um, I want to thank you very much, but I have one question I'd like to ask because prior to this call this evening, um, discussing a lot of things, one of the things was about organizing. I just got off the phone with someone before this call saying we have to organize 
way or we're never going to get there. And I wanted to talk about organizing not only federal workers but the but people in general. Because I think when we do this siloing, you know, the, the federal workers organize over here and the regular people organize over there and the farmers organize over there. I was really hopeful that we could come up with ways that we could organize so we could be effective in most of these arenas because the problems that occur in the federal government don't stop there. They just jump into different skin and happen in private industry. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, right now I'm organizing around a black cemetery in Bethesda. And, of course, the, the major issue in, in this organization, is, or this problem, is land. You know, we have a county government that um, refuses to recognize that black people are buried in ex- very expensive soil in Bethesda, Maryland. So they don't want to recognize the fact that they have a right to stay there and, and, and that laws are being broken right now by removing them. Uh, and but 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 the but the essential issue again is land, and and so you know I think you know it's imp- once you organize in one area like in the federal government, you can begin to take some of those same skills and organize in in a, in a more general way, and so I think you know I would love to see like weekly meetings within our homes, where people begin to come together and and just talk about various problems in the community and how they plan to address those problems, and then to spread out in our community and begin to organize, whether it's in the school system or the healthcare system or like the burial grounds problems um, that we're having throughout the country or the federal government. But somehow we've, we, we, we need to begin to take some of the energy that's being spent in a lot of other areas and really begin to focus on how we organize to solve our problems. And and I know everything in the society sort of um, sort of you know attempts to um, deny us that ability or you know tries to you know substitute other kinds of issues for that. But organization is the most important activity that we can engage in, particularly when you when you're looking at how pressed we are in this society. I mean, today the Supreme Court just roll back affirmative action. Um, and, and that's a major issue for this country. It's a major issue for farmers. It's a major issue for every member of the black community. The question is, what, is our, what, what will be our response to that kind of attack on the black community? And the only response we can really have is to begin to organize so that we perhaps take over our own educational systems and we begin to teach our children and not rely on other systems. But that's a conversation that we need to have in the community. And I'm just hoping at some point our community will begin to organize itself like we were, in fact, organized in the 20s and 30s and 40s and the 50s. And then, of course, integration came and we began to disperse. But we dispersed at our own peril. Thank you very much. And 
you answered the question, the question, and I think it's always important to end a show like this with not just talking about the problem. Uh, Dr. Coleman Alibayu, thank you very much. You not mm-hmm. only talked about the problem, but you talked about solutions, and you answered uh, Marcel's call. I want to thank. Uh, I want to thank. Uh, Michael Stovall for being on and listening and uh, in the early part of the show while we, we, we were waiting for you, Marsha, and I, I think that this is an outstanding show, and I think our listeners uh, will walk away with a lot of answers uh, to go move forward to help each other organize and do something about the problem and come up with solutions and act on those solutions and not just uh, complain about the problem itself. Thank you so very much, Mar. Marcel, you, you, you want to close? Me. Thank you. Thank you for being Absolutely. on. Thank you, Michael, for being on. You're welcome. Yes. Thank you. I'd like to thank our listeners. I'm, I'm sure that there was so much information that everyone stopped. And said, I just want to listen tonight. I, I don't want to ask a lot of questions. I can't thank uh, Dr. Adebayo enough for stopping by and giving us this information that's so vitally needed and telling us what she went through with her struggle to stand up for justice. So she certainly is a champion of justice. Um, I want to thank you, uh, Lawrence, for continuing to um, bring us such outstanding programs and such great guests. My name is Marcel Reed. I've been your guide to tonight's program. All of this was due to Marty Oakley, who was the founder of TS Radio. We look forward to speaking to you next month. We will be presenting guests, hopefully, that will answer questions for you and will leave you with action steps, things that we can do to make it better. We don't just want to look and talk about it. We want to figure out a way to make it better. Good evening. I look forward to speaking to you at our next program, which will be next month. Take care.
Hello, Lawrence. Was that better? Hello, Lawrence. Yeah, hello. Thank you. What do you think? I think I got a little better, and so I won't be clouding the program. I was so nervous. You know, I only had a half hour to learn how to do this, and I've been out there doing it. But now I'm getting more familiar with it. Did you know that you can actually call from the dashboard? So, you you know, before I had to call her from my phone. So I was trying to call her from my phone and keep the other phone open, but you can actually call from the dashboard. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, so we're moving on up. Um, we're moving on up. We're moving on up, Mark. She was an excellent guest. You see how she tied in the, the farmer and the land? Wow. Yes, you have to give her credit. She's brilliant. And I wanted, because just before the call started, I was on the phone with some people in D.C. that are trying to put together a program about all of the housing that's lost and trying to put together people who are talking about dialysis. And what we all realized is no matter what, what you're doing, you need to have a central organization like the NAACP was supposed to be but never worked out or that you can go to and foment a movement and that organization can answer that call. And we don't have that. We don't have that. So what keeps happening is you talk about black farmers and somebody else talks about dialysis and somebody else talks about land and somebody, and we never pull together enough so that if you say the black farmers need you to do this today and all of the organizations respond. There you go. We, we, we may get there. We may get there. Well, we and, I think, and I think a show like this helps helps to uh, bring people together of different thinking and, and different purposes and different missions. And uh, she talked about that, and she brought that out very clearly. And she said, and I knew she would. So uh, we, we're on a path. I think path. so. So who do you have for next next month? Have, no, 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 I know you don't know yet, but, I mean, to stay on this road is great.
I say, okay, that's who I want. Now, if I'm if there's something coming down the pike, and I know that 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 uh, this subject should be raised and something's going to hit, I get them a month ahead of time. But ordinarily, I kind of watch the news, and I'm talking about watch the events around what our listeners want to hear and what we want to give our listeners. And then two weeks out, I confirm it. But many times, like well, Marsha, I got her three, four weeks ago, three, mm-hmm. weeks, three and a half weeks ago. She said she was really upset about what was going on with the Supreme Court. She said, have you heard about it? I said, I have been inundated. Sure, we all heard about it. Yes, of course, I've been inundated with it. That's all I've been hearing about all day since they made the ruling is about the ruling. That's nothing else has come up. All of this conversation I'm talking about is people talking to me about their response. But, see, it doesn't matter what we say if we can't act. That's right. And that's what I was trying to tell them. It doesn't matter what you say. You get in your kitchen and you scream and holler and you spin around three times and fall on the floor. It doesn't yeah, make any difference. No. You got to, no, you got to be able to hit the streets. And you have to have people that are brave enough to hit the streets with you. And my experience has been that when it comes time to hit the street, there are precious few of us out in those streets. Absolutely, and I'm telling you this from 15 years of doing this these streets in D.C. I pull together 100, 200, 300 people in the streets. Sometimes I pull together 800 to get the SIFMA, but it was tremendously hard, tremendously hard. And then when you yeah, and then when you do it and you walk away from it, there is not a soul alive who understands how much work that took you. No one. They don't walk away from it and say, "Ooh, she got eight hundred people out to SIFMA." First of all, you don't know what SIFMA is. Number two, they hide their address. Number three, I flooded the place. You know what people came from there and said? Why was we in that building? <laughs> well, that's just, that's just like uh, you got to answer the question with the sign. Uh, why, why are those black farmers out there in front of the White House? Yeah. Those signs are big, big and bold and the cartoons to go with it. Yeah, but see, I couldn't do that because we going into SIFMA undercover. I went in in my business suit, opened the door, and by the time I got through, it was 800 ACOR people in there. But the, but the people out just said, why were we in that building? This is crazy. But anyway, the bottom line is until we organize an action arm, an arm that can show up, I'm afraid we're going to be down to this letter writing thing that we're doing, and I don't mean letter writing in that sense, but I mean three, four people in jail. We got to we got to figure out a way past this, and the longer that we stay inert like this, is the longer they're going to treat us like this. That's right. Yeah. So anyway, it was good talking to you. Let's get this done. And you got and I sent you uh, the draft for you to work up and uh, for the uh, summit. 
telephone numbers and emails and names. And to file on them, right? Uh, I don't have a bio on them. Well, I got, I got, a, I, I, I gave you, I gave you what these people don't have. Farmers don't have files. No, no, but you can say where he's farming at and how many acres he has and how long he's been farming. That's really and all I, I want. Okay, well, now, now that's not in there. You take a look at what I gave you. Uh, I told you where they were from. I said that there were advocates. One, one young lady who represents her, her father, who's going who's, uh, who's to be on the show, we're going to talk about what he's been through physically and, 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 and all that kind of stuff. And I, I wanted a female, but I wanted some a young person on there. And I got one of the ladies who demonstrated in Washington who came up with her mother and father. Uh, and, and the original founder of the National Black Farmers Association. Take a look at uh, what you got. You got a little piece on. You got a, one or two lines on each one of them. Okay. I'll talk to you later. And I, and I, and I did that... Uh, as a as a as a guide for what we did last year. Okay, same format. Yeah. Okay. Talk to you till later. Tell the show hi. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you.
drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists, and fascists. We will throw off the sixth political class that hates our country. We will rout the fake news media, and we will liberate America from these villains once and for all. We will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers from our government. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists, and fascists. We will throw off the sick political class that hates our country. We will rout the fake news media, and we will liberate America from these villains once and for all. Like this? Yeah, that's it. Let it rip. All right. <laughs> and I said, Ron, you can beat this guy. Let's go. I got him the nomination. By the way, could have never gotten a nomination. He would be working in either a pizza parlor place or a law office right now. Just let her rip like this? Yeah, that's it. Let her rip. All right. <laughs> He would be working in either a pizza parlor place or a law office right now. Just let her rip like this? Yeah, let it rip. Ooh. All It's a very exciting day around here. Um, we'll have reaction. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you very oh, much. Thank you. 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 